We are in Luke 4, and it is good to dive into this passage where Jesus tells us explicitly why in the world he came. So it'll be helpful to hear from his own mouth uh, why he says he came to earth. Um, I think this is one of the the greatest texts for helping us to see the heart of God and to draw near to it. So that's what we'll be thinking about today, seeing and pursuing the heart of Jesus. And I want to begin by reading <clears throat> verses uh, 14 through 20, but we will go from verses 14 all the way through verse 30. Book of Luke, for those of you who are guests with us, um, just know that we're preaching through the book of Luke, and that's what gets us to this spot. Uh, we didn't just kind of randomly pick this. Um, we have been preaching through Luke, but you should be able to uh, not be behind at all, uh, just because we're diving into Luke 4 here. So, Luke 4, I'll read verses 14 through 20, and then I'll pray. Word of God says this. And Jesus returned, remember this is from his temptation, a time when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding area. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and this is Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Let's pray. Just as you astounded the hearers in that moment, we ask that you would do the same right now, O oh, gracious God. Just as in our text you are about to unveil that all of that is speaking of Jesus Christ and why he came, I pray that you would unveil to us right now the, with clarity the meaning of your word and the desires of your heart. Father, it is good to know you and to hear from you, and I just ask that you would blow a fresh wind of your Spirit upon us this morning, that we would really be comforted. And I pray that those who are struggling with certain sins find themselves wandering away from our precious Savior, that they would be stirred in this moment to run back to His heart. 
to run back to you, to bow their hearts in humility and to grow. So Father, please strike us with your beauty in this moment. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday a dear friend of mine threw a surprise party for his wife. His wife was turning 40 and he planned for months to try to surprise the one we thought was unsurprisable. The planning had been rigorous. He has many children, and so he couldn't even tell the children, at least several of them, because you can't have that many covert agents, because somebody's going to let the cat out of the bag. So as he planned and planned, had over a hundred some odd guests that had shown up, and it was in a gym, and there was a ton of food, and there was music, and there were games, all kinds of aspects to this party that had to be coordinated. But the question was, would she be surprised? And so her mom and her sister came in from uh, out of town and surprised her, and so it kind of desensitized her to maybe an upcoming surprise. And sure enough, when she walks into this recreation center where all, everybody is gathered, she literally thought she was coming to watch a basketball game and ran into 120 people. And her face was just shock. It was, it was genuine shock. And when this husband saw his wife genuinely surprised and tears coming out of her face of thanksgiving, he went like this upon my shoulder. <sighs> It was like, it was like, it happened, it happened, and then he got to get up and he shared just a little bit about how much he loves his wife and why he did this, and tears began to flow, and what you began to see was evident to everyone involved, that he loved his wife. You saw his heart. You saw his heart with the time and attention he gave. You saw his heart by really trying to figure out what might bless her. You saw his heart in all of the planning. You saw his heart in his sense of, ah. You saw his heart in his words that he loved his wife. And what we see right now is we are let into what we honestly are let into so often every time you really read the scripture. You're let into the heart of our Savior. What is close to his heart? What does he love? What does he spend his attention on? What does he give all of who he is to? What does he say, this is what I want to have a keen eye towards. This is what I want to give my heart to. When Jesus left glory and he came to earth, why did he do it? And the window is pushed open. The door is cracked. And Jesus, with his own words, tells us his heart. So today we want to see his heart. We want to see it and we want to get near to his heart and we want to pursue what is close to the heart of God. And I believe that can be summarized in three things. Number one, he's closest to the heart of God. There is no other rival. God's heart is for God. 
What we're going to see in this passage is God's heart for himself, for his glory, for people to draw near to him. But we also begin to see that God has a heart for the poor. And we also begin to see God's heart for all peoples. Although two and three are secondary, they are not inconsequential. They are not unnecessary. They are not unimportant. So we'll look at God's heart for God, God's heart for the poor, and God's heart for all peoples. So let's dive in at first to God's heart for God. If you understand kind of where we are, Jesus has walked through 40 days of fasting and prayer. At his weakest moment, the devil comes and attacks. If I go one day without a lot of sleep, I'm irritable, okay? There was this, and if I go one meal without having food, there's a sense of I'm tempted to be irritable. Here, he has gone 40 days with no food, and there is this spiritual attack, there is this spiritual exhaustion that has come upon him, the fighting, this spiritual battle. I tell you, I traded all day long to go work in a field and be physically exhausted than to experience emotional exhaustion of sadness or grief, difficulty and pain. Emotional exhaustion is just a different type of tired. And our Savior experienced that. And what we see is in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he heads back home from the wilderness to Galilee, this general region, and he's on his way to his hometown of Nazareth which is in the region of Galilee. And when he is in that region, he goes to the synagogue. Now, word has gotten out. He's not just any old average Joe. We don't get all the details, but people know of Jesus. He's been baptized. John the Baptist, the one that his fame has reached far and wide, has already articulated that there is someone who is Sandals, I'm not even worthy to, to lace up. He baptizes him. His name is Jesus. And so word has gotten out that this is someone who's important. And this someone who's important arrives in the synagogue to teach. But don't miss the big picture. Why would he go to the synagogue? Well, he's already told us earlier you remember when he got lost, so to speak? His parents couldn't find him for a while. Where was he? He was in the temple, and he was dialoguing. And what did he say when his parents finally found him? Of course, I'm in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. Why did he go to the synagogue? It was about who? Okay, it's time to talk. Let's just interact here. It was about who? It was about God the Father. That's right. Why does he go teaching from synagogue to synagogue? Because he knew what his forefathers had said is most important. He knew 
When David says in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The temple, the synagogue, was this place where God would meet with His people. Jesus was there because He wanted to be about His Father's business. He wanted to be near to the heart of his father. And the teaching was not just so that they could learn rules right and wrong and stay away from bad things and run after good things. It was so that they would run after the best thing, the heart of God. God's primary heart is for himself. And his primary desire for us is that we would draw near to him. There is no greater place to be than to be humbled and bowed down low, to be still before the living God, to draw near to quiet streams of water and to seek the face of God. And in the busyness of everyone in this room, that is the first thing that the devil wants to pull away from our pursuits. You know it. You know it. From lowness of desire to the excuse that everything is more important to how in the world am I going to get all this done? And so we neglect him. And one day turns into one week and turns into weeks upon weeks, sometimes even months. And we haven't sat before the living God and declared what is most important. And then we wonder why we are exhausted, why we're overwhelmed by the news we read. It's so amazing we can understand and read everything that's happening politically, but we haven't stopped to be near the living God. No wonder we're afraid. The more you know the goodness and the grace of our God, the more you know His promise to be with His people, the more you're still, stillness of heart, you're not afraid because our great God is in control. Jesus knew it. And he goes to the synagogue moment after moment. Now what's interesting is as you read through the Bible, you actually read through Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, you see that what regularly happened in the synagogue was central upon the scriptures. Let me read Acts 13 for you. It says, Acts 13, verse 15, it says that after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, this just gives us a small window into what happened in the synagogue. They regularly read their Bible. They read from the law and the prophets. There was regularly a reading from Moses, there was regularly a reading from the writings, there was regularly a reading from the prophets, cultivating this longing for the coming Messiah, that he might come and that they might worship him, that they might stay alert and not grow fatigued or kind of indifferent. And there were times that when other teachers, known teachers, would come into the synagogue, they would then be given an opportunity to speak or to hit stands. Not that. So when they were given this opportunity, this verse is speaking of Paul and Barnabas. As they were going about, they were given an opportunity to teach. Well, Jesus is the same way, a visiting teacher, and now he's given an opportunity to speak or to teach. Do you have any word of encouragement to give? 
We also see later on in verse 27 of Acts 13, what else was common? For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Do you see that? Let's just take the underlined portion, utterance of, I don't know if it's underlined up there for you. It's not. But this line right here, the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. It's what they did. They read their Bible. And now you have read from the Lord the chapter 61 of Isaiah. Now, before we get to why he read what he read and what he was about to read, I don't want us to lose the first point. It is not, as I said, in equal weight as any of the other points. The greatest passion of God's heart is God's heart for himself. And the greatest love that he could give to us is to be all in in bringing us to himself. It means that he ordains moments of extreme joy so that we might taste a sense of gladness. It means that he ordains suffering and difficulty so that we would be weaned away from this world and our gaze would be set upon what is most beautiful. Because love is defined as what draws us near to the heart of God. What gets us near to his presence. And as I was just reading, and I'm just, this, I'm just using this as a way to not lose the big picture, but to also read this devotionally for your own heart. I was honestly just struck by verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Remember, he was fatigued. He was worn out. The Spirit was with him the whole time, but he was exhausted. And yet, God attended to his Son, filling him with the Spirit so that he was able to be re-energized. He was able to go back out and do what God had asked him to do. God's heart, the giving of the Spirit of God to God's people is so they would not stop doing what he has called them to do. You will not be left alone, and our God doesn't leave you to fix yourself. He attends to you so that you can return in the power of the Spirit. And there was a verse that just struck me, Jeremiah 32, verse 41. A pastor friend of mine used it while I was in Minneapolis this week, and the verse just stuck out to me. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40 and 41 says this, And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Do you see? This is God's heart for God. I will say that I am to be the most revered of everything else so that you will turn from everything else as a primary source of allegiance and your heart would be all in to me. That's what God says. But he also wants you to know that his heart is all in for you. Look at how the verse keeps going. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What does it mean to be in it with all your heart? You're holding nothing back. You're not, as the phrase goes, half-hearted. You're not divided in your allegiances. 
All your energies are going right there. And do you believe that to be the case of your God for you today? He is not half-hearted. He is rejoicing over you. He is singing over you with gladness. Even when you are a sinner, for those who trust in Him, He sees not your sin, but your Savior who died for your sin. He rejoices over you. Your label is as a child, not as a sinner any longer. And He is all in. He doesn't tolerate you. He doesn't put up with you. He loves you. And he is fully for you with all of his heart. I am all in in loving you, he is saying to us. And so, our Savior knew of the presence of his Father being all in for him. And it gave him strength to return in the power of the Spirit to do what he is called to do. And Jesus knew What he was called to do was to suffer. He knew it. He knew it meant to embrace pain. Be encouraged, church. You are loved with all of God's heart. He is all in for you. But God's heart's not only for God. What we see as Jesus unfolds the scripture is that God's heart has a keen eye towards two specific groupings of people. He thinks as he looks over the world, he thinks, I want my glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I want my glory to go and to spread. I want to be known. And as I am known, I'm going to have a keen eye, a keen eye towards the poor. And I'm going to have a keen eye towards not just being loved by one ethnicity, but by being loved by all people. So let's look here. Isaiah 61, and we'll begin to see God's heart for the poor. So, remember, he's in the synagogue. It's common to read the scriptures. It's common for a guest teacher to come in and to read. So now he's asked. And he stands up to read, verse 16, and we dive in at verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolls it, and he finds the place where it is written, Isaiah 61. He also ends up going on and quoting Isaiah 58 in here, verse 6, but he reads to us Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, to those that are in the synagogue, and it says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We've already seen how that's the case. Spirit of the Lord came down upon him at his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord attended him while he was being tempted in the wilderness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him as he returns to gospel proclaiming. And it says, because he has anointed me, set me apart, just like a priest is set apart in their context, to do one thing. To proclaim good news to the poor. It's a blanket statement. The poor is not in this list. It is a general statement. And now it is going to be described for us. Who are the poor that he's going to proclaim good news to? And good news is gospel. Good news, gospel, to the poor. Who are the poor? 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The captives were those who were exiled, Jews who were sent away and dispersed, who still found themselves not in Jerusalem, not in their nation state of Israel, but they were scattered all about under other rule. Liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Who are the blind? Those who cannot physically see. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Who are the oppressed? Oppressed from the government. Oppressed from disease. Oppressed from growing up and being born lame or as a leper. Those who were oppressed, finding themselves in economic poverty. And then it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What was the year of the Lord's favor? Well, Leviticus 10 gives us some insight into what that is. Every 50 years, God had established in His people that all debts would be wiped away, all slavery would be stopped, and there would be a sense that everyone is set free, coming together, and it's this clean slate of freedom from captivity, freedom from debt, freedom from any sense of oppression. And as much as Israel could in that 50th year, they were to proclaim liberty to, in their land to all inhabitants. The sojourners were set free. And it was a year of jubilee. You might have heard that phrase. Why in the world does Jesus say this? <clears throat> He came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, what's interesting is that for Luke, he's read his Bible. And he knows this, that although Jesus is not spiritualizing these words and ripping physical connotations of these words out from underneath these words, he's also clear that the prophets said these physical pictures were communicating spiritual realities. And so both of these can be read both physically and spiritually. Luke emphasizes when he says proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, the, free, the freedom and the liberty he proclaims regularly is forgiveness of sins. But he regularly highlights that how that's done as Jesus goes about healing and delivering people from disease, etc. It's not, is this physical or is this spiritual? It's yes. We've already said the primary emphasis is not on our physical status and our physical well-being. The primary emphasis is that the people would draw near to the heart of God. When he speaks of blindness, it's not just those who are physically blind, but it's those who are spiritually blind. When he speaks of liberty for the oppressed, he's not just talking about oppressed from those physically around them, but even spiritual oppression as he goes around delivering people from demons and setting liberty 
And regularly throughout the Old Testament, when it's talked about the year of Jubilee, it is a physical picture in the lives of Israel to talk about what is going to happen when all wrongs are made right and sin is no more and the people of God are standing at the throne of their Savior, worshiping forever and ever throughout eternity. We know this by how Jesus continues his ministry. So when you keep trucking in the book of Luke, here's what you see. Just in chapter 4 alone, okay? Just where we're going next week, you see this. A man healed of demon possession. Liberty for the oppressed. You see him going to Simon Peter's mother-in-law who had a high fever, and she is healed. And then you hear him say, I must go to other towns, and get this, that I might proclaim the good news as I go. He heals, he proclaims. Then you see him go on. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic. You see him call Peter to himself, a fisherman. And what is the result of Peter being in Jesus' presence? He says, I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. What do you have working as Jesus does his ministry? It's honestly Luke 5 ends this way. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 9 summarizes it for us. Now stay with me because I'm, I'm getting someplace. I know this feels like I'm belaboring a point, and I am. Okay? I know it does. I'm about to tell you why. Just stay with me. Okay? Luke 9. Luke 9, 1 and 2 and then in verse 6, summarizes Jesus' understanding of what it meant for him to proclaim good news to the poor. Okay, that's what I'm trying to get at. What did it mean in Jesus' understanding to proclaim good news to the poor? Here's what it is, summarized in Luke 9. And he called the twelve together because now he's got his followers and he's about to send them out and tell them, do what I'm calling you to do. Do what I came to do. And he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim, there's our word, the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went out through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Was Jesus concerned about the heart? That's, that's a question. Very good. Is Jesus concerned about the suffering and disease around him. Yes, he was, okay? So that then in verse 6 of Luke chapter 9, you also see him say it again. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Why do I belabor this point? Why do I belabor this point? Because this. It is rampant in Christianity today, and those who claim Christianity, to say you have to pick. You have the, the liberation gospel, you have the, what some will call the social gospel, which says Jesus came 
for political struggles and societal struggles and economic struggles, and that's what we must be about. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ divides those people, what is most important is to attend to their physical needs and to show them a Savior who was grassroots caring for the hurts. And so others look in on that and say, no way, you can't get rid of the good news of Jesus. And so what happens is the pendulum swings way too far the other way. And they say that Jesus isn't primarily focused on anything that's going on with the body. We must proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And they neglect caring for the physical needs around them. Luke 10 is a prime example, and we'll get there eventually. It's the parable of, does anybody know it? The parable of the good what? Samaritan. When Jesus is asked, what does it mean? There's only two commandments that summarize the whole Bible. Love God, love your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? He tells a story to Jews that they might learn from another ethnicity How to love, and love is described as meeting physical needs. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It is to do mercy. We cannot, in our self-righteousness, say it's about proclaiming only. And we cannot, in our bleeding heart, say it's about deeds only. It is a crock to say, I will love and if necessary, use words. If you don't use words, you aren't loving. And I mean the words of Jesus Christ, crucified. As one pastor says, it does nothing to air condition someone's ride to hell. To make their suffering easier on this earth only so that they would have eternal suffering forever. We're about alleviating suffering and the greatest suffering for humanity is that they would not be at the throne of the Lamb enjoying His presence forever. So, does God have a heart for the poor? Yes. Is that spiritually poor? Yes. Is that have physical threads and tentacles that run? Yes. We are not about loving the city here as Treasuring Christ Church because it's a good social thing to do. We do it because it is uniquely keen to the eyes of God. Now I've got to ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why would he say to be a follower of Jesus is to have a keen eye towards physical poverty and suffering? Why? Well, the reason is Physical and spiritual poverty are intimately connected and physical poverty is a fleshy depiction of the intense spiritual neediness of the human heart. Summary, when you see poverty, you see your heart. And Jesus wants you to see it a lot. When you see one who is homeless, You see one who would spiritually have no home were it not for grace. Today is my little boy Justice's six-year-old birthday. 
the other day, my wife and I were driving down the road, contemplating this day when he would turn from five to six, and we began to think about his story. It's easy to forget sometimes because, you know, he's like any other kid. He's, he's got issues, and he's disobedient, and he's funny, and I love him, and I hug him, and, you know, we, we play together, and it, you just sometimes forget the story. That my little boy in northern Ethiopia in a town called Gondar was found naked wrapped in a rug underneath a eucalyptus tree and left. And the only thing that kept him alive was a police officer walking on his patrol, hearing screams. And he walks into the forest and he sees this little baby boy. And he picks him up and he takes him to an orphanage. And 18 months later, a family is paired with this little boy from Raleigh, North Carolina. And he is in our home. And you want to hear about being reminded of the gospel? Our sin leaves us naked and abandoned. My son had no inheritance. He was abandoned by his biological parents. He had no inheritance laying there in that rug. And he was screaming and crying, longing for someone to come near to him. Do you see how this shows us Jesus? That then he is brought into a family and he is given an inheritance and he is adopted. Do you know in the state of Georgia that when you're writing out a will, you can write out your biological kids, but you cannot write out your adopted kids of your will? They got to stay in. It's just this common grace picture of when you're adopted, you're in. Why does God have a heart for the poor? Because He wants us so near to the poor that we never forget where we came from. Rich or poor, that we are defined not by our economic status. We are defined by our Savior who adopted us, who made us children who loves us, who gives us an inheritance and calls us into his family forever. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I remember when we took a team to Guatemala and we were standing at the edge of the largest dump in Central America in Guatemala City. 11,000 people call the dump their home and their place of occupation. And we heard stories of people dying because they are eating trash. And we were working with a church that we were seeking to encourage about stepping in and caring for the poverty that's in their area and us just being a small little means of grace in those moments. 
Why would God want our hearts near to that kind of poverty? Because we are those people. We feast on things that will destroy us. He wants us near to the physically poor so that we would understand that we are spiritually poor and that we need a Savior. It erodes self-righteousness, which is so common for the people who feel like they have. God does not want us to be the people of the haves and the have-nots. He wants self-righteousness to be ripped away. He wants us to be defined as those who are in Christ and those who are not. That's why the author of the Proverbs even says, Oh God, make me neither rich nor poor. Because with my riches I'll forget you and with my poverty I'll curse you. It was this sense of we can seek to be defined by our economic status. And God wants us linked to his heart. And so he even says in Psalm 41, 1, I've been doing a study on every place in the Psalms where the word blessed is used. And I came across this in Psalm 41, 1. Blessed are those who consider the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Now, I don't fully know what that means. But here's what I do know. Satisfied, happy, content are those who draw near to the poor, who have a keen eye like our Savior has, and we will trust Him for what deliverance means. Can He heal in the here and now? Yes. Can He remove people and pull them out of poverty? And does He use means to do that, like the people of God coming alongside and caring for people in their poverty? Yes. Will he do it in every situation? No. But one day he will. One day he will. And the hope of the people of God is no matter what physical situation they find themselves in, their greatest grip is by a God who is all in in loving them. All in. And who will get them to the end. And on that last day, the lame will walk. And the poor will not be defined by their poverty. And they will be richer than the richest one because richness is defined by faith and not by economic status. There will be no jealousy in heaven. No classism. No racism. There will be the people of God worshiping around the throne. And as we think about poverty... We have to understand it is a complicated thing. It is. And I'm not primarily a sociologist. I want to know my community. I want to know how to best care for the poor. But my primary goal is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also need to know my neighbors. I need to get in their lives. We provide a lot of opportunities to connect with low-income individuals in our community. First of all, there's many low-income individuals in our church body. Second of all, we have primarily and intentionally located ourselves in a low-income area and in an ethnically diverse area. Why? Again, 
It was not because we wanted to be known as the church that cared for the poor or that was pursuing multi-ethnicity. It was because we were convinced of the heart of our Savior when he says, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. And he proclaimed the gospel and he healed everywhere and his followers did the same. It's not that when Jesus goes out and he proclaims good news to the poor that we're supposed to say, go God, good job, doing well, keep it up. It's like, no, God's people were to follow him in his ambition, to follow his heart, to see it and to pursue it. So we have tons of opportunities The career discovery program, mentoring, walking alongside moms who have just chosen to keep a child rather than to abort a child. And I can just tell you, it thrills my heart. I get emails every single week from Gateway about women who have chosen to keep their children who were hell-bent on aborting. It is so beautiful to see that God is rescuing life after life, but they need care. They need people to come alongside them. We do a Loving the City celebration so that we can get to know our neighbors But friends, more than a program, it's about relationships. It's about relationships. And we just pray that God would, just like when you go to maybe buy a vehicle, like if I wanted a van when we were looking for vans, what all of a sudden did I see everywhere on the road? What? Vans, that's right, because I was looking for it. When you're looking for a home, what all of a sudden do you begin to see? Everywhere. What type of neighborhood, what type of home you might like. You just are thinking that grid through all that you do. Jesus came for the heart of his father. And the grid that he looked through is how can I get all people to worship my father and to bow down and trust me. But he also was like, how can I focus in on my people caring for the poor? He had an eye for them. He knew where they were. He went towards them. And he wanted peoples of all ethnicities to worship him. And so may God give us an awareness. May this just bring an awareness. May we begin to see maybe what we haven't seen. And just as a side note, this is not going to be... I can do a whole lot of talking on what it means to care for the poor. This is not the chance for that. But I will say this. It's not primarily giving out cash... It is primarily hearing a story and building relationships. It doesn't mean that you don't help them, but giving cash and having them move on is not primarily, or it's rarely the best way to care for the poor. A lot more to say, but I'll keep it moving. I'll keep it moving. As we care for the poor, Jesus also lets us into something else, that his eye is not just for the poor, but it's for all peoples. Now, I'm only going to spend just a couple of minutes literally on this, not because it's less of God's heart or it's less important, but because we just did a race seminar for two and a half hours focusing in on this subject, okay? So although you don't need to know all that content right now to benefit from this, I do want you to know these are both the heart of God But that's why there's a lopsidedness in time. And so, 
He says in verse 21, Jesus does, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They stood in awe about what Jesus was just now saying. He came to proclaim good news. He came to get the people of God near to the heart of God with a keen eye towards the poor. But now look at this. Jesus is about to be discounted because he was a hometown boy. I saw you grow up. You really that special? That's what they do. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you're going to quote to me some proverb. Physicians, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, and now he just gets, as my grandmother used to say, cantankerous. <laughs> you might not know what that means. Feisty. That's what she also used to say, so that probably might not register with you either. There's a sense of he's stirring them up. Because now, who's in the synagogue? Jews. He gives two illustrations about who he's going to go after. And here's what he says. He uses the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. And he says, you want to know who's near the heart of God when the Jews reject God? I'll tell you who's near the heart of God. And he says, there were many widows. Why does he use widows? Because widow are a category of poverty. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was spent to, sent to none of them. <laughs> he was sent to none of the Jewish widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, Gentile country, to a woman who was a widow. And then he goes on, and I'm going to tell you another story, he says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. He didn't cleanse the Jewish ones. Instead, only Naaman, the Syrian, the non-Jewish Gentile was cleansed. And when they heard this, <laughs> he stirred them up all right. They were angry. And they drove him out of the synagogue to the edge of a cliff, which there were two ways to be stoned in Jewish tradition. One was you literally picked up stones and hurled it at them. And the other one is that you were pushed off of a cliff onto stones. Both were stoning and both were a sense of I'm going to kill you for what you are saying because this is blasphemy or this is not what the word is teaching. And that's what they do. And then this sense of miraculous deliverance. And we have no idea how they can run him out of the synagogue, run him to the edge of the cliff, and then wham, he passes right through them. He could have just stopped the presses as they were going out the synagogue. Nope. It's this miraculous sense of deliverance that God just pushes him right back out because it says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. And in other places, it tells us that it was because it was not his time yet. When it was his time, the cross happened. 
and they killed him. But until it was his time and his hour had come, he was not going to be killed. Our sovereign God is in control of life and death. He wants you to remember that in your own heart. Until his purposes are through for you, as one missionary said, Henry Martin, you are immortal. Because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that name of the Lord is to be known not just among Jews, but among all peoples. <clears throat> I remember when we were living off of Bloodworth Street, um, one of our dear neighbors, her name was Lonnie Mae Hedgepeth. And Miss Hedgepeth has gone on to be with Jesus. But she had 17 kids in a shotgun house, and she had over 100 grandkids, great-grandkids, etc. So by being her neighbor, I, we felt like we already knew like half the city. They were in and out of her house all the time, and she was one of the first of our neighbors to actually lend us an ear and have a conversation with us. Because the street that we moved on was primarily African-American. And that we were called, and rightfully so in some senses, the Caucasian invasion. And so as we came in, there was this sense of we are trying to be a savior. We are trying to capitalize on some type of low-income housing. And so there was a view of skepticism. There were people that would... Uh, our neighbors that would walk on this side of the street, and when we were out, they would go to the other side of the street so that they would not walk by our house. But Lonnie Mae Hedgepeth didn't let that stop her. She talked to us. They invited us over and over to many of the family meals. People stopped crossing the street. People started engaging us. When trouble happened, they would come to our house in order that we might be able to help and care for them. We grew to be family. And I'll never forget, it was her 90th birthday at John P. Top Green Community Center, right at the end of Bloodworth Street and MLK. And we go into John P. Top Green Community Center, and my family is the only white representation in the entire room. And as we sit there, she calls me up to pray. Well, I, I, honestly... I was a little nervous. And then before I prayed, she says, I want to talk to you all. <laughs> she had earned respect of all of her family. And she began to say, you know something? When I'm cut and he's cut, we both bleed red. These people are my family. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced at times what it means to be a minority in a setting, and it is jarring, and it is difficult. And I've also been with those who are regularly a minority in a setting, and then I've been with them when they were now a majority, and I've seen them act almost completely different. Celebration, relaxed, laughter, dancing, they're, they almost 
act completely different. And God is delighted when the people of God from multiple ethnicities feel that kind of comfortable around multiple ethnicities. And oh, that God would bring together, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a people, whether they be Indian or Chinese or black or white or Hispanic, a people together, united by the common gospel, differing in political opinion, differing in ethnicity, differing in all kinds of things, but together, unified, loving each other, and able to be who they are, and that God would then get glory for himself. That's why God is aware and passionate about multiple ethnicities knowing him. It's so that he would be praised to the ends of the earth. So what's God's heart? God's heart is for himself and that we might worship and know him. God's heart is for the poor secondarily but necessarily and God's heart secondarily yet necessarily is for all peoples to worship at his feet. And so may we, may we have a keen eye towards God's heart and get near to his heart And just ask, what does it look like for us to be near to his heart and follow him and his mission? It doesn't mean it characterizes your every day. It doesn't mean it characterizes your every week. But it does mean it characterizes your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to draw near to your heart. That we would see you and love you, and we would never confuse the second commandment and the first commandment. When we do that, we get burnt out when we love our neighbor before we love you. We get fatigued. We get sucked into a social-only gospel, and we do not speak the good news of Jesus. Oh God, protect us from those errors, but protect us from the other error. Help us to draw so near to your heart that we are propelled into the lives of the poor and the needy in our body and in our community and to the ends of the earth. Would you give us your heart so that we want to know other people's journey? As I think about, even as I pray to you right now, I think about February is Black History Month. Oh, may we take the opportunity to learn about either if we're African American, about our own culture, or if we are not African American, knowing about another culture, hearing stories, seeking to grow in hopes that we might learn one another, love one another, and be driven to worship Christ together with one another. Oh, Father, please, we trust that you have died, that you have died so that you will be known in your church among all peoples. And so, God, we pray that you would be known through us and you would do a great work here because we trust that you are in with your whole heart for us.